0: Hey everyone, I'm Peter Medlin, and you are listening to Teacher's Lounge from WNIJ. If you've never heard this show before, I've got great news for you. It has a super simple concept. We just think almost everyone has had a teacher, a coach, a professor, someone who inspired them, and we want to hear about them. So who comes to your mind when we say that? Let us know. Shoot us an email at teacherslounge@niu.edu, and it could be featured on maybe the next episode of the show. Today we have Alina Quintana She's the executive director of the Institute on Public Safety and Social Justice at Adler University in Chicago. And she's also helping lead a new bachelor's degree program at Big Muddy River Correctional Center. We talked a ton about her experience teaching about childhood trauma in prisons, her public safety advocacy, and how that and her work at Adler has had to change because of COVID 19. We touch on some really heavy and I think fascinating topics, and then we also get a little lighter at the end and talk about the very specific thing that Elena thinks is hilarious. All right, stick around. Before we get started, during my conversation with Elena, I referenced a summer food program that I got to visit recently, and I wanted to bring you that story really quick. It's the summer, and schools are really searching for silver linings from their COVID school year, and I got to take a look at one pandemic idea that has lasted. A food program that goes all the way through the summer instead of ending when kids leave the building. Boxes of fresh produce line cafeteria tables inside an elementary school in Amboy, Illinois. Tony Fasig just finished setting up for the summer food program and families are starting to trickle in.
1: Good morning. morning. Half a watermelon per family. Um, Do you want Bosco sticks, meal kits,
0: or sweet and sour chicken? Sweet and sour chicken. Okay. So far they've been giving out food to hundred kids a week, and the program is growing in the rural school district of around seven hundred students. Fasig says she thinks a lot of families may not know about the program yet and Others might pass on the groceries because they think other people are in greater need than them.
1: I've had some mothers go, oh no, we're fine, we haven't lost our jobs, you know, and I'm like, but come in and get a bag of groceries. I mean, it's all fresh produce, and this is all taxpayer
0: funded. Lisa Moore is a teacher at Amboy who has two kids of her own. She's picking out fresh strawberries and cucumbers. This is the first time that she's been at the free food mart and says her family has struggled a bit more financially because of the pandemic. It's just kind of was
1: overwhelming when I walked in and how much you can take per child. I'm okay. My husband's job was cut. So he gets like half what he used to. So there's challenges there where you
0: have to pay for a college student. The number of Americans relying on local food banks increased during the pandemic and four in 10 people using them were doing so for the first time. Covid-19 forced the USDA to expand waivers for the National School Lunch Program last year, which has allowed schools to provide food to more families. Joshua Nichols is the superintendent of Amboy, and he says they saw a real need in their community for a summer food initiative. There are very few districts that did that, and so it's like, is that okay that we've never done that? Or it yeah. kind of bothers me a little bit. You know, I mean, because we have the means to do it, and we haven't done it every child is entitled to a full week's worth of food they can pick up every Wednesday around lunchtime. There are no financial qualifications. Kids don't even need to be there when families pick up the food. Lots of parents are working midday on a Wednesday, so they swing by on their lunch or have a babysitting grandparent stop by. Steve is one of those grandparents picking up food with his grandson Mason. Their family has seven kids between 2 and 12 years old, and Steve says the school's program has been a big help.
1: it be pretty costly if he seven kids you
0: know tony Fastig and the other staff have also been able to deliver food to a few families without transportation she's the head of the district's kitchens and she spends time every week curating the produce options
1: we just started getting cucumbers
0: zucchinis and strawberries offered to us baby carrots are a fan favorite and she says they have to make sure that they're offering a healthy selection that kids will want to eat it's not yeah. nutrition until they get it in their tummy food isn't just going out it's also coming in from the community Fassig takes a carton of eggs from one of the middle school custodians.
1: She raises chickens and she's always trying to pawn me eggs Off the last week she warned me.
0: The custodian trades the eggs for a few bags of groceries and a carton of milk. Can you take a couple of packages of strawberries? How do you get the strawberries? You yep. get, get, take a couple. You
1: got more than one child. Take a couple of them. Oh, thank
0: you, Bonnie. Yeah. Federal food waivers are continuing through the 2021-22 school year, and that means Amboy and other school districts across the country will be able to offer a similar free lunch program next year, albeit with a few minor restrictions. And as long as the funding is there, school administrators hope they can keep fighting food insecurities as families recover from the financial effects of the pandemic. And finally, I do have a quick story about another college program for students who don't often get those opportunities, this time students with intellectual disabilities. A recently passed bill in Illinois allows special ed students to stay in school past their 22nd birthday, and advocates say there just aren't many higher ed opportunities for students with those disabilities, and I got to learn more about one at Rock Valley College. Illinois ranked 44th among states in its ability to serve people with intellectual disabilities. Marianne Axe is the program director for the RAISE program at RVC and a retired special ed teacher. She says it's common for students to stay within their high school until they're 22, but there's only a limited amount of lessons districts can offer. Sometimes what happens is they will, for lack of other opportunities, retake classes they've already taken. This gives the schools an opportunity to send their students out here to the college. The rigor's a little more significant with their non-disabled peers. ACT says there are only six similar college programs in Illinois for students with intellectual disabilities. Ray's features a half-dozen classes covering everything from cooking to disability law and RVC hopes to expand it soon to include more internships and job training pathways. All right, all right, without any further ado, it is time for my conversation with Adler University professor Elena Katana. We ran a story earlier this spring, just generally talking about prison education programs and how they've had to pivot during the pandemic. We had some people from the, you know, we talked to the Education Justice Project, and uh, there's a new program in Augustana that's out of East Moline Correctional, and we got to talk to them about that, too.
1: Yes. And so you talked to um, also Rebecca Ginsburg for EJP, right? Yes. She's the one who got me into this mess. (laughs) Is Is that true? She is. Yep. Yeah, actually, when I started, when I first started at Adler in 2011, I had, um, I just inherited this research assistant, and she said, you remind me of one of my professors, and she's in town, and I'd like for you to meet her, and it was Rebecca Ginsburg, and that was the end of the story, so I just started uh, volunteering at Danville Correctional Center, so.
0: No kidding.
1: yeah, and really like fell in love with higher education in prison.
0: That's fantastic. Yeah, I, I love when this happens in interviews that I was going to ask you about how you got started in there. So you're already ahead of me. You're already answering the questions before I even have right. to say them. Makes my job easier. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I am fascinated too, because you know you mentioned your program, because it's the Institute on Public Safety and Social Justice, Adler, right? Yes. You know, we're talking about how things are having to adjust with the pandemic and Zoom calls. I'm curious about, you know, for your program, like how have you guys had to adapt?
1: We have a number of things that are not mostly education specific, but like you said, we were not able to get into the prison. We have, we work with something called the Community Anti-Violence Education Program that's at CAVE, which is about addressing trauma. Uh, for people who are locked up. And so that was put on pause and we became uh, kind of connected to like just sending in readings or whatever. I mean, that sort of thing, but there's not... And we also became much more um, supportive of things that were happening in community for people who left that program. But it was really sad to be able to have that kind of interruption, but uh, the community work still as strong as ever. Because so many people got
0: out of prison this year. Yeah, they did. And with the prison programs and the way they've had to adapt, you know, I know a lot of them you know, talk about Danville, we're doing those correspondence courses where it's like, you know, two weeks to get them the assignments, two weeks to get it back. And so it's wild to me that they are able to complete, not just work, but do it really well with that much gap, not talking to professors and also just living in, like, frankly, really dangerous situations during the pandemic.
1: It was incredibly difficult. It put it brought up so many types of uh, challenges, but I'm really happy that we were able to use the downtime to develop this program that is now being launched at Big Muddy. So we did use our time, so I'm happy for that.
0: Yeah, and I want to get into what you guys are doing at Muddy, but I I also wanted to ask, I mean, I know that on top of all this stuff, you're involved with, you know, a lot of different, you know, advocacy work and things like that. And I always, I've been asking people the last, you know, month or two, as we've had this entire year plus of the pandemic and had to readjust so much and figure out new ways of approaching things and doing things in different formats. Have you, seen anything that's a silver lining for what you do that you could say, well, we learned this and this actually worked really well. And like, maybe this can continue on even after the pandemic is over.
1: You know, a lot of the work that we do at my institute is really about addressing trauma as opposed to recreating it. And I think that Um, particularly all of the pressures that happen in community and people spent more time in their community than ever because they're all working from home and um, or not working, you know? And I think that it really created more of a sensitivity and an appreciation for how important it is for people to be able to live in communities that are vital and where people actually understand that we belong to each other and how do we do right by each other as as members of a community. And I think that is super important in terms of the restorative justice work that we do as well as the um, violence prevention work that we do. We do a number of different kinds of work that promote public safety um, and I really think that, like, thinking about how to invest in communities and how to invest in well being and mental wellness has really taken um, greater importance to everybody that we are so sensitized to what's happening within our communities where we live.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I see it in so many different ways and avenues. Like, I was just doing a story, you know, completely unrelated to the conversation we're having, or at least not explicitly the same thing where I was in a really, this school district in this really rural community had been offering, or just started during the pandemic, offering essentially, you know, free lunch and free food programs all the way through the summer. And that was something they had never done before all the way through the summer, but the pandemic shined a light and they realized that this was a major need in their community. And I got to go out there and almost every single person I had talked to had had some kind of family member or spouse or someone lose a job during the pandemic or need those services even more.
1: Yeah. One of our restorative justice hubs that we work with, like acquired a whole other building so that it could be a food pantry for the neighborhood because they had lines of like hundreds of people, thousands of people every week to, because there's so much food insecurity. So yeah, people definitely started showing up for their communities in bigger and better in different ways though so, absolutely
0: and so you guys have this as we've, we've just briefly mentioned you guys have this new program at big muddy and that just launched about a week and a half two weeks ago or so
1: mm-hmm, on the 28th of june so Yes, so the, um, there's three campuses at Adler University. We have a Chicago campus, we have a Vancouver Canada campus and we have an online campus. And there was real interest in partnering with the online campus to be able to start a bachelor's program. Adler has always been a graduate level uh, educational institution. And this is the first time that we've done a bachelor's completion program. And so to launch it within prison for me is really exciting. And especially in Big Muddy where the educational offerings are pretty slim. Uh, There's some vocational programming there but there's not a lot of academic uh, offerings. And so this gives people a chance to be able to take college level courses for credit. And to be able to um, build their critical thinking skills and that sort of thing, so it's exciting.
0: And it's a bachelor's in applied psychology.
1: Yes, it is. Uh huh.
0: Yeah, it's fascinating because it's also like there's a big online component to this, and I believe there's like you know laptops and like the, some of the courses are online, which is pretty yeah. different than almost every other prison education program that I've heard of, like we've talked about these correspondence courses. That seems like something that is pretty unique. Is that that correct?
1: It is mind-blowing in terms of trying to retrofit IDOC's classrooms with this uh, access to technology in the outside world that has not been um done before so it's very exciting to be able to have people like it's very interesting like one of the students was like I don't know how to use a cell phone much less a computer I have been locked up a really long time I don't know like what an, a learning platform even looks like. I mean, there's so, there was a lot of trepidation around even what it meant to like log in. And of course there are younger guys who'd been brought up Uh, with laptops and whatnot and so the the students are also acting as kind of technology tutors to each other which is exciting to see as well and idoc has really put their back into getting the classroom wired for the internet being able to you know and they have to do all these kinds it's very sensitive in terms of what controls they put in there and so um they have to actually you know uh site by site, be able to okay each of the websites that people can access. And so it's been a tremendous amount of work on the Illinois Department of Corrections side. And I'm excited that they've uh, really embraced this process to get it going.
0: I was gonna say, because again, from the people that I've talked to in the different programs that I've, I've, you know, had on the show and run stories on, like technology is super limited inside these correctional facilities. And so like, is there a an education program like this that had internet access in a similar way before this?
1: Not that I know of. I do know that there have been some kind of, uh, some of the um, uh, prisons have GED programs where there's kind of a canned GED tutoring program. Right. That's like, In the laptops or in the, they're actually um, desktops and you can actually just do the whole program within that software. But in terms of an interactive uh, thing where you're actually accessing a live instruction from somebody who's beaming in from California, no, I don't think that's been done. I was going to say,
0: like I've seen some pre-recorded things and stuff like that. But like you said, having it be live and interactive seems like kind of a new thing. Yes, and, that is
1: absolutely. New. Yes. And for me, I think that yeah. in-person education, I don't think it should take the place of in-person education. I think that in-person education is absolutely wonderful, particularly for people in prison, but I also think it's not realistic at every prison. And so this may, if this pilot goes well, fingers crossed, that this may be able to provide educational opportunity for places that will likely not get in-person education.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And and there is an in-person component to that. And, and you're also a part of that in terms of in-person assistance and things like that right
1: yes absolutely so my job because i had been involved with the department of corrections in other ways and with other programs before this i was very excited to get back in And be able to support the process of this moving forward because, you know, with pilots, you know that there may be hiccups. And I wanted to make sure that things went as smoothly as possible. So for the inaugural, for the the first um, week of things, um, for the first week of things, I was on, you know, I was on ground in uh, Ina, Illinois, where Big Muddy. River Correctional Center is, is located and was able to sit in the classroom with the students and go through the process of what they can expect and all that kind of thing. So I will be providing an in-person support throughout the, like at the beginning, probably the beginning, middle, and just to make sure that the pilot goes as smoothly as possible.
0: And then, Alina, what was it like to be in person? I have to imagine this. They haven't had many outside people coming in to provide, you know, outside programs very much in the last year or so.
1: I know volunteers in Department of Corrections are just being cleared to come back in August. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I do think that the instructional programs have been invited a little bit earlier to kind of set up. I know that was true for us the end of june at big muddy so little by little we'll be back in action but i do think that it is hopeful for online education to be able to you know provide safe education when in-person education is not possible
0: was it delayed at all because of the pandemic this program starting is this something that's been in development for several years now how long has this been in the works i think that
1: it's. you could say it has been an active in an idea phase for quite some time, but it has been an active development for the past year, where we have been working with the Illinois Department of Corrections, reaching out to them, learning more about how we could do this. And I'm uh, very thankful for all of the tremendous amounts of work that it's taken them to get this online, because prisons, if you think, are created to kind of keep the outside elements outside the gates. And so they really had to create a lot of infrastructure changes to allow something like this to happen.
0: Yeah, I would have to imagine so. So this has been in development, in the process for over a year now. But I think that you mentioned earlier on in our conversation too, like this isn't the first time that you've been inside prisons for education programs. You mentioned that you had been at Danville too. And can you tell me a little bit about what the classes that you were doing there? Because I think that you've explained it slightly, but I I ran across another interview where you were talking about that. And I thought it was, it was really fascinating talking about helping people identify trauma and learn those things.
1: So when uh, I had been um, working at, before in my previous life, I had been working at the, um, at ceasefire um, doing violence prevention work. And that had been for the 12 years before I came to Adler and there were so many people within prison who wanted to stop violence but couldn't figure out how they could contribute to peace in their neighborhoods while they were still locked up and one of the things that I was very excited about at that moment was about the new science around learning about adverse childhood experiences and the importance of addressing childhood adversity as a way and trauma how to how to address trauma as a way to really help people respond differently um, to trauma triggers in their lives. And I do think of unaddressed childhood trauma as a real reason, uh, a a basic reason why there is so much violence in communities. So I had, they had asked me to come in as um, as a speaker about violence prevention. And I also brought in an article about adverse childhood experiences and they had a violence prevention working group at that time. And they were such diligent students that they not only read the article that I gave them, they highlighted all of the citations and got as many of those articles and read those articles. And I was just so impressed. They were like the best students I had ever had. And I was teaching at a graduate school. So, I mean, it was just amazing to me that these people in prison would be such diligent students and they were, became like an affinity group for me in terms of learning more about trauma. And so we started working together and uh, it became a thing called the Community Anti-Violence Education uh, Program. And that is in collaboration with Education Justice Project um, that works out of U- uh, University of Illinois. So that's exciting because a number of volunteers would come in and keep cave going twice a week. And I would just come out once a month. And it was, it's been a a really lovely and exciting game changer for people because they're really able to think about themselves differently as more than the worst thing they've ever done. And as like wonderful, active change agents in the world. And so I'm really grateful for what, CAVE has given so many people.
0: I mentioned that Augustana Santa has a new college program over at East Moline. It does feel like maybe, in, you know, now and in the last few years that educational opportunities in prisons, at least in Illinois, seem to be expanding. Is that a fair assumption?
1: I hope that that is the case. Um, I really want that to be the case. I do think that we are on a course where that will be more and more the case because Pell Grants had been discontinued for a time in prisons. And now on the horizon, I think it's in the next year or so, that they're going to be reinstated so that people who are in prison will be eligible for getting government grants again. And, you know, I think that there was this kind of sense that why should we give people who have been convicted of crime access to, to um, funding for higher education. But I do think that we need to really uh, evolve as a society and this reinstatement of po grants is a sign of that evolution in our thinking about how do you best create people that you'd like to live around after they've been in, in prison. You don't want to just create a revolving door for the prisons. You want people that are able to meet their human potential and be able to contribute to society and pay taxes and live safely in the world and, you know, be their best selves. And that happens when they have access to things like support and education.
0: Yeah. And I think that, you know, as we're looking at this in the future too, there's a couple things, right? Like, obviously massive conversations about, you know, racial injustice, police brutality happening last year. But one of the things that one of the other, you know, prison educators brought up to me, and this might have been actually the folks at the Education Justice Project, is that just seeing during the pandemic, the kind of environments that people in prison were living in, Kind of shines light the more you know the media exposure you would see of of these poor conditions that people were having to live in with COVID, that it kind of highlights and brings attention to the needs that those people have and and maybe can push momentum forward.
1: I feel emotional as you bring it up. I mean, because there was this whole uh, push, a whole committee that was created out of the Illinois Coalition for Higher Education in, in Prison just to create access to soap and sanitizer, basic, basic things that you like think soap. might be made terrible. Soap and sanitizer, like these are things that were not blanketly given in any sort of a timely basis to all the prisons. And I I do know that there was a lot of activism and it's, it's you know, the people that are locked up are not the only people that are in prisons all day long. I mean, as important are, you know all of the correction staff help because they're the ones coming and going, who are at greatest risk of contracting communicable diseases. So everybody's safety is um, at stake.
0: Yeah, and you know, I, as I was I was researching and preparing for this interview, I, I was coming across other things that you had worked on and researched. And I don't want to take up your whole afternoon. I don't. I don't want to hijack your whole Friday here. But you know, you mentioned that in you know, your, your, I think you said past life, that you were working with programs like like Ceasefire. And that is an idea that, you know, that program is kind of based on epidemiology, right? And this idea that, that violence can spread like a pandemic, which is, I'm sure that in 2021, we might have more of a language of, of what that means. Can you talk a little bit about what that program Was founded on, and those ideas for people that maybe aren't aware of it.
1: Sure. Um, Now it's called Cure Cure Violence. Yeah. And um, the idea behind it is that it takes a lot of different kinds of people to stop violence. But when when violence is occurring, it occurs in concentrated in, in high concentrations, and that when one person is Let's say infected or if affected by violence, that it spreads. It spreads easily to other people around them. And when you look at maps, um, epidemiological maps of violence, you can see that this is the case. That there are certain hotspots where violence happens more frequently. And I do think it's in in you know the way that we've thought about this as a society is that we think about oh we need to. Um, root out the bad apples that are creating all of the violence, and we need to lock them up for a long period of time. And we need to stop gangs and and uh, take their guns and uh, stop the flow of drugs. These are the things that we need to do. But I really do think that you know our critical thinking and thinking about um, historical trauma has brought us to a different point now where we're thinking why do people feel that they need guns to protect themselves? Like, who are these people that feel unprotected? And who are these people that don't have access to the mainstream economy? And are these people the same ones whose schools are closed or who don't have blanket access to good education? And um, how is it that gangs uh, produce access to, economic viability or protection or um, community connection or even like food security in ways that um, not being affiliated with a gang does. And so I just think it's important for us to be thinking when you start thinking more about how. Um, Inequality drives these kinds of health disparities and participation in high risk activities, then we start intervening in ways that actually create lasting public safety. And I think that we're coming to a point as a society that we understand that we're locking up more and more people and we're not safer because of it and if we want to actually create a lasting public safety we need to do the types of things that invest in human potential and that's why this type of thing that we're doing at big muddy is so important where we are investing in human potential by creating uh, educational opportunities every way we possibly can
0: our programs in communities like Cure Violence, are those things uh, still growing and and becoming more prevalent in in, in places like Chicago?
1: Well, I think that there's a number, you know, when I first came uh, to, when I first started there in 1999, there was a bad feeling about, um, about outreach, about just that you couldn't trust outreach workers or whatever. Now... It's been a generation later, and we've had a generation of outreach works and workers. And I think that there's a true um, appreciation for what outreach workers are able to do. So I I think that they have definitely um, gained their, their place in the professional spotlight. And I and I think that people have had a lot of generally good experiences in terms of uh, outreach workers being able to access spaces uh, that law enforcement can't or that other people won't want
0: to. Yeah, and you know, you you talk about outreach, and again, it makes me think of another thing that I saw is that you are also part of the community engagement team with the CPD independent monitoring team too, right?
1: That is true. <laughs>
0: <laughs> did
1: you, you did your homework.
0: I did my yes. homework. I fa- I'm, just, I'm just, again, I'm fascinated to learn about what that looks like. And, you know, especially during the pandemic when outreach in the way that we think of it is maybe a little bit more difficult or has to change in some ways.
1: Well, you know, the Chicago Police Department's under a consent decree and um, is uh, federally bound to create a number of reforms. And I'm on the community engagement team that uh, basically measures public sentiment and opinion about whether or not that is happening. So I have had many, many, many interviews, discussions, presentations, focus groups with all sorts of Chicagoans to talk about Um, their experiences with the Chicago Police Department and how they feel about them. And I think it's so important because you can have the police talk about what they're doing differently, but if public sentiment doesn't change, then we're not seeing the change that's necessary. And so we constantly as a community engagement team members, we constantly need to be engaging with the public to see if if there are real changes that are being felt and experienced on the ground.
0: Was it difficult to do that kind of on the ground engagement during the pandemic? Was it, because I'm really fascinated about that.
1: Well, it was easier and harder in many senses. Well, because also during the pandemic, there were a lot of uprisings that took place around the city. Yeah, And that I would drive to a number of them and, uh, you know, witness what was going on and talk to many scores of people who had been involved um, for themselves, who had been arrested, who had had different kinds of contact and including with police officers because I'm with the community engagement team, but police officers are also many, you know, thousands of people that live in Chicago as well. And so um, those, I think, those uprisings really were a flashpoint for uh, this for feelings changing around uh, policing and um, for police and for the community members as well. And I just think um, continuing to have these honest discussions about what we're hearing um, is a really important part of the monitoring process.
0: Absolutely. And to bring it back to the prison education part of this and what you guys are doing at Big Money, you know, at the end of my interviews, I always like to ask this question because I'm always interested in kind of where my own blind spots are and and where people feel like there isn't enough attention being paid by people like the media. So I guess I would ask you, is there something about prison education in general or the work that you guys are doing that you think is more important than people outside of that that may realize or an aspect of it that you wish more people talked about when they talked about it?
1: Prison education is one of the most gratifying things I've ever done in my life. And I've done a number of really incredible things in my professional life that I'm very grateful for. Um, But the reason why it's so gratifying is because people in prison are so hungry to be able to move forward in their lives and to reach their potential as contributors to society. And I don't think that people on the outside are aware of that because I think that there has been largely this framing of people who are locked up as the worst of the worst and um, as people who um, don't have much potential that nothing could be further from the
0: truth. Like literally that they should be contained away from us because they're too, you know, violence or whatever.
1: Right, right. But this is like largely people who have had unaddressed huge amounts of childhood trauma. And when they start learning about this, it really provides them help to be able to see themselves in a different way and see their lives and their choices in different ways as well. And there has sprung from all of this trauma informed work, this tremendous community that has given rise to additional housing, additional uh, job searches, social support, um, uh, phone trees, all sorts of support that has taken place from different people who have gone through this trauma and. Formed experience within the prisons, and then come out and committed themselves to being kind of a soft landing place for other people as they get paroled out. And that's so great that this healing community has, has sprung from this place that you least expected.
0: Well, yeah, I mean, talk about gratifying when we're talking about applied psychology and trauma informed, like, I'd imagine there's a lot of those light bulb moments when you're kind of just giving people the vocabulary to talk about these things in general and talk about trauma.
1: Absolutely. When people start learning about their brains and their brain function and how, what they went through in their childhood affects the way that they respond to things. It produces this very humanizing way of understanding their lives in a way that promotes forgiveness for themselves, but also a sense that they can be accountable to people that they harmed as well. And for me, that's so exciting when people are excited about building their own potential as contributors to the world. And they don't feel like, oh, I'm, I'm uh, broken, and there's nothing I can do. It's just who I am. Like that narrative does not help public safety. The narrative that helps public safety is when people have hope for themselves and they actually have the tools and the access to transforming themselves. You know, when people start thinking, like building critical thinking skills, they stop thinking about, oh, woe is me. And they start thinking about how can I use my time? And they also start thinking about, oh my gosh, the light bulb goes off. I really harmed somebody. And I, how can I be accountable in that way? How can I be accountable to being my best self? And how can I be accountable for addressing the harm that I caused either to my community or to a person or a family? And that is what we want to see is these kinds of transformations that are so healing and that create real, real transformative change over generations.
0: So you have the pilot program now. And how mm-hmm. many how many students right now?
1: There's 10 students to start off. And we are really hoping to build it into a full bachelor's completion program. And so we're already, I was in a meeting this morning, and we're already talking about expansion, getting more students matriculated, and being able to have a couple courses every semester.
0: All right. And Alina, I just have a couple more questions for you. And, cool. you know, I, I'm interested, you know, this is a show that in a lot of ways is about inspirational educators. And I wanted to ask you, did you have a teacher, you know, at some point in, within your educational journey that kind of inspired you to do the work that? you're doing now. Maybe it's Rebecca Ginsburg. I don't know. Maybe we already covered this.
1: (laughs) She's fantastic. I'm going to say I went through some pretty hard times when I was a kid and I used to chew gum a lot in school. And that was a rule that you couldn't chew gum. And there was a seventh grade teacher. I went to school in Arizona and there was a seventh grade teacher named Mrs. Wirtz. And every day she would catch me chewing gum and every day i would have detention with her after class
0: was it the same kind and of gum did you did you mix it up is I, it just a spearmint
1: person i think it, <laughs> it might have been it might have been that i don't know maybe bubble gums <laughs> or something that sounds like the 7th grade gum yeah and so yeah and so she would uh i still chew gum but um she would keep me there after school and it was so interesting because she would just be with me She wasn't about punishing me, she was about accompanying me and walking with me and seeing the potential in me and being there for me in the way that I needed her to be. And I think that kind of accompaniment is what so many people need. And when that was shown to me, I really do think that that was incredibly, transformative and protective in my life. And I feel like I want to be a good steward of what was given to me and be able to accompany people into their success as well.
0: I love it. The last question I have is completely out of left field. I hope you're prepared for it. (laughs) You you said that I did my homework. I really hope that this proves it to you. You were asked in one interview, what makes you laugh? And do you remember what you said? Did you,
1: I say dogs that talk?
0: You said dogs that talk in movies. Yes. I <laughs> is it is it like is it like the homeward bound style where it's just a dog and they put the voice over on top of it, or is it like scooby doo where you see like the CGI then, dog's mouth move to it?
1: <laughs> yeah, I like all of it. I like all of that. I like the and black dog. I really do like the and black dog, but I don't know. It makes me laugh. I found recently. This uh, app that you can make your dog's mouth move, like you can film your dog and then you can film them saying things. Yeah, Yeah, so my son got a new puppy and I filmed the dog saying that the dog wanted to come visit me. And yes, I. (laughs)
0: yeah that's That's such a that's such a specific answer I love it (laughs) it's not just like you know I like raunchy comedies or something it's specifically dogs that talk in movies Mm -hmm. that's perfect
1: I know that's ridiculous what I really do love also is when I get caught off guard like when somebody's so witty because usually you see jokes coming a mile away I come from a very funny family so I kind of see jokes like you know those kind of um
0: Right, low, uh, so, lowest common denominator type of things. Yeah, yeah those kind
1: of jokes. I'm just like, whatever I saw coming. Right. But whenever people really surprise me, I love it.
0: I hope we caught so, you yeah. off guard with the talking dog question. I hope that caught you off guard. Sure
1: that, was <laughs> that was good. That was good. Good homework.
0: Absolutely. All right, well, uh, thanks so much for you know taking 45 minutes out of your day and, and coming out here. I really appreciate it again.
1: Yeah, I have one more thing that came of the work in Danville, which I want to say. is. Please. Piloted now, and it's uh, the harm dialogues that are coming out of the Justice Equity and Opportunity Office, with working with Lieutenant Governor uh, Juliana Stratton. Uh, conversations, these harm dialogues that can take place between people who have caused harm and people who have been harmed, and and that really, I was very motivated to work on that based on the work that we did in Danville, and so good things can come out of the prison education.
0: Yeah, those sound like. They could be really moving and powerful conversations.
1: I'm excited for that to launch. So, yes.
0: All right. Well, (laughs) again, thanks so much and and have a great weekend.
1: Thank you, you Ethan.
0: Thanks for listening. As always, feel free to nominate a teacher in your life to be on our show. It's how we get great guests like Alina. Send them our way to teacherslounge at niu.edu wherever you're hearing this on your podcast platform of choice go ahead and subscribe leave us a rating make sure you don't miss another episode and a big thank you to the northern illinois band kind ofs for the awesome music that you hear throughout every episode of our show find more other stuff on an episode of wnij's other show sessions from studio a which is hosted by our dear friend spencer tritt who also made the logo for this show so thank you to him and I have been your host, Peter Mudlin, and we will be back with more Teacher's Lounge very soon. See ya.